together that gave them a king that was moving them forward. And we know that all the subsequent kings after David followed in David's footsteps. Not righteousness, but unrighteousness. That they turned in on themselves and they decided that their way was better than God's way. And what the people of God, as the nation of Israel did, is they turned away from their calling to be priest to those people around them. To be a peculiar people for all the nations around them. And what happens? The kingdom falls apart. The kingdom in the promised land does not stay where it's supposed to be. It does not set itself up as a shining example of God's grace and mercy and truth and love in all of the world. It falls apart. It gets dragged off, actually, into exile and taken in to marauding in other countries that come and take them over. And in that midst, we begin to see the story of God transition to prophets. Isaiah is one of those prophets. And I want to read to you from the message, their introduction of who Isaiah was writing to. And that'll give you a good understanding of sort of what the prophets were dealing with. In the introduction to Isaiah, it says this, who it's written to. To the good citizens of Judah, enjoying their thriving economy, their all-you-can-worship-God buffet, Rich businessmen used ruthless legal tactics on the vulnerable. Their wives strutted around in expensive clothes, and King Ahaz had an impressive Assyrian altar copied and installed in Jerusalem. Holy, holy, holy wasn't in these people's vocabulary. They worried about national security threats, but they thought the solution was clever political politics rather than doing what God said. The more dangerous things got, the more they fled to sex and alcohol. That's what was taking place in the nation of Israel. These people who were set aside by God as a particular people, as people who were supposed to give out an example of what God in creation, which is good, had set forth a right relationship with him, a right relationship with ourselves, a right relationship with others, and a right relationship with place was breaking down. And so the prophets come in to speak to those people around them. Now there's lots of prophets that take place that we could look at. Uh, My favorite prophet is Jonah. Interestingly enough, Jonah is not a prophet that was for Israel. (laughs) Jonah actually gets sent to the enemy. Might be one reason why I like him. He goes out far away from the people of God. I I find myself sometimes really like hanging out in the pub versus the church. That's just me. (laughs) Maybe that's why I like him. He's also interesting because he gets in the belly of a big fish, and when he gets spit up, we know that that means he lost his hair because the acid had eaten it away. So I like the bald prophets as well. (laughs) Maybe we like Ezekiel or, or... Elijah, maybe we like Isaiah because he's got so many messianic sort of uh, prophecies that tell us that Jesus is coming, that there is hope. But there's one that I think we sometimes skip over. How, How many of you like love stories? Yeah? Don't we all, I mean really, sort of at the heart of ourselves, we really like love stories. We like that idea of a boy and a girl meeting 
and how they look at one another and how they maybe fall in love. It, it gets shown over and over in TV shows and movies and novels. I mean, there's whole sections of romance novels, right? Maybe that's not love, but romance novels that are out there that we look at. We probably all have a favorite love story movie that we would go back to over and over and over again. If you're a good husband to your wife, then it's hers. That's the one you like the most. Whatever she's picked and chosen as her favorite. So for my family, it's Notting Hill is one of the ones. Now she has lots. I mean, she can't help it. She's got a husband that loves her so much that she just revels in love all the time. Maybe. But this, this movie, Notting Hill, is all about this guy and this girl trying to get together. They don't seem like they should fit at all together, but all of a sudden, they do. Through all the trials and all these things, and there's this big chase scene at the end where he's going after her to find her, to, to tell her that he loves her. And it all turns out okay in the end. And we think, ah, love, that's beautiful. But what if I was to tell you that the love story that we're going to talk about today involves a prostitute? And, and we're not talking about pretty woman. As a matter of fact, this puts pretty woman to shame. You guys remember the movie Pretty Woman? Julia Roberts, Richard Gere, she's a prostitute, high-end prostitute, and he hires her and they fall in love, and he becomes her knight in shining armor. And she turns away from her life of prostitution fairly quickly, rapidly, in fact. But that's not the case in this story that we're going to talk about. As a matter of fact, in this story that we're going to talk about, the prostitute stays a prostitute. She's an active prostitute and one who enjoys the prostitution for a time. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hosea. If you weren't there, we're going to look at the story, this love story. And then we're going to pull out of it what it tells us about who God is and what it tells us about who we are in his redemptive pursuit. And then we'll end at Hosea 14, which we read earlier, because it's the perfect capper for this story. So I thought about how I would present this love story to you today. Should I act it out? Should I retell the story? And as I really kind of searched and thought about it and prayed about it, I realized that probably the best way to tell you this story is just to read it to you. So I'm going to read it to you. It won't be on the screen because I just want you to listen to it as if it's a, a movie playing in front of your eyes. And in doing it, I want you to understand this is not an analogy. This story is not a metaphor. This is true. This happened. God spoke to the prophet Hosea and said, I want you to do these things. So imagine that as we listen. And the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. The great shall be the day of Zezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. Plead with your mothers, plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness and make her like parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, and she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me there than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feast and her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast of the days of Baal, when she burned offerings to them, and abandoned herself with her ring and her jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, this is the Lord speaking, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor the door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by the name no more. And I will make 
for her a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to, my, to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man as in an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. This is a love story that is hard for us to hear. So let me give you the picture. Homer first hears God calling him to be a prophet. And he says to Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Because that's how Israel has acted to me. Go marry a prostitute and bring her into your house and have children. And she will run away from you over and over and over again. And as she runs away from you over and over and over again, pursue her with all diligence. Go after her. Not only that, when you find her, Pay for her, your wife, and bring her back home. And I will say to her, you are holy, you are right, you are true. And I will say to her children, which I have named, no mercy, you have mercy. Which you are not my people, you are now my people. What does this tell us about God and who he is? Well, the first thing that it, we should see clearly about who God is, is that he is a God who pursues his people. Not just his purpose. We know what his purpose is. To bring glory and honor to his name. To be recognized as the sovereign God. The one who is right and justly to be worshipped. But he doesn't just pursue that purpose. He pursues his people. He comes after them. He looks for them. Just as Hosea goes out into the highways and byways looking for this woman who has run away from him, who has gone back to a life of debauchery, he goes and he seeks us out. He finds us. He is not silent. He does not sit back and wait. He steps in and pursues. The second thing that it tells us is that he's emotional. God is emotional. What does he say in chapter 1, in chapter 1, in chapter 2? Listen to this.
He says, plead with your mother, plead with her. She is not my wife and I am not her husband. I'm no longer your God and you are no longer my people. What it lets us know is that God is emotional. He has anger. He has frustration. He so what does that do for us? I think oftentimes we want to deny our emotion. For me, I know that's true. For a long time, I really believed that the stoic way of living is the best way to live. That we need to think of every worst case scenario there is, plan them all out in our minds, and go, okay, if this happens, this is how I'll respond. 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 And that way, no matter what happened, I would not be taken by surprise. Boy, it sounds like I have a control issue, doesn't it? But in doing that, it allowed me not to be caught off guard and to not have emotion. To say that emotion is bad. That it shows that I'm out of control. Here's God, who is purposeful in his pursuit of his people, who is never out of control, being emotional. He's saying, you have hurt me. Not only that, you've devastated me. He is sad and brokenhearted. To the point where here, really, he's saying, I'm divorcing you. Now, if you've been through a divorce, or you have those around you who have been through a divorce, you know that even if the perception is it's the best thing, it is painful and hard and hurtful. And to say that we shouldn't be emotional about it or that we shouldn't step into a place of grieving or sadness or despair, that that's not the Christian way to go, well, then that's absolutely wrong because God does exactly the opposite. See, God created our emotions. He's the one who knows who we are. And in creating those, remember, creation is good. He allows us to have that place where we can step into them and acknowledge them. God actually uses our emotions in order to redeem us, in order to sanctify us, to make us holy. It gives us the ability to grab hold of the fullness of the goodness of creation. To go, yes, there is celebrating, and yes, there is weeping. That yes, there is comfort, and yes, there is gnashing of teeth. That in all of those things, God the Creator has made them, and by His example, we have the right to step into them. Not to be controlled by them, because God's not controlled by them. But to acknowledge them, to see them, to claim them as what they are, a gift from God to be able to walk into. I think the third thing that we see about God First, he pursues his people. The second one is that he has emotions and that it gives us freedom to step into ours. The third thing is this, is that he understands abandonment. God understands abandonment. He watched these people that he had so graciously given a covenant to, that he had so graciously called forth to be a shining example of what a nation should be. Go away to things that they had carved, to the gods of the other nations that had come in on them. Believing that those things would give them comfort, that those things would give them power, that those things would give them 
what they were looking for, when in fact God all along was the thing that they were looking for. He understands abandonment. And so for you, it gives you the ability to know that this God, this great and mighty, high and lifted up one, knows and understands the things that you go through. What does it tell us about us? <laughs> well, it tells us this, that we get enamored by shiny things, that we turn away from the God who so lovingly calls us, that we put our faith in things that we think will bring us security, things that we think will bring us power, things that we think will bring us enjoyment. And really, if we stop and we get into Gomer's life, maybe we understand that, again, those things spring from shame and fear. Here she has been cast out from her family. Imagine this. When, when Hosea goes to her dad, because that's how it happened, to say, Can I, I want your, your daughter, Gomer, to be my wife. Don't you think Gomer's dad was like, Whoa! <laughs> Yes, yes, finally, someone is going to take my trashed out daughter and make her pure. Somebody's going to take my daughter that I have no hope for and make her right. Don't you know that Gomer knew that that's how she was perceived? Don't you know that Gomer, even in the midst of Hosea coming and saying, your, your father has given you to me, that she couldn't believe it, that she couldn't trust that in fact God would be that merciful, that somehow she would have a husband who would love her. And don't be mistaken, listen, yes, Hosea is a prophet, yes, he's called by God to do it, but let's be honest, there is no man in hearing God just because God told him to do it would run after a prostitute over and over and over again. God, in some form or fashion, changed his heart to be madly and deeply in love with this woman, just as he was madly and deeply in love with Israel. So when he says, I love you, he means it. Gomer had stopped hearing that a long time ago. She had probably heard, I need you, I want you, you're mine, I desire you, I like the way you walk. I mean, really, if you want to know how people probably talk to her, go listen to a presidential candidate in the States. <laughs> she was demeaned and pushed under and crushed. And so she stood in fear that there's no one who will ever love her and shame because of all the things that she had done. And so she decides that it's no point, that there's no way that she can be redeemed. But God shows us again through this prophet Hosea, I desire the relationship that before the foundation of the world I created. I desire 
to be in a relationship with you. For you to be in a relationship with me. For you to be able to understand your relationship with other people. And for you to know your place where I have put you. That I will be your God and you will be my people. Now real quickly. Oftentimes when we come to prophets, when we start thinking about prophets, our minds kind of go, okay, so what does that mean? What, what, what are they talking about? What is prophecy? What does that look like? And so before we get the idea of Gandalf or some wizard standing there going, this is what the future is. Listen, prophets were never about future casting. Never in Scripture. Yes, they talk about things that are coming in the future, but that was not what their role was. We want that to be their role. We desire it to be their role, for them to be able to say, here's what's going to happen in the future. Why? Because we long for security so much more than a God who so passionately runs up against us and runs for us. We would prefer security than to have a reckless lover. And so our desire when we hear the word prophet is to say, yes, tell us what's going to happen in the future. So we can be secure. That's not what a prophet is about. The prophet is always about four things. Reminding. A prophet always reminds about the history of Israel. It's always saying, here's who you were called to be, and here is what is going on now. Here's who you were called to be by God, and here's what you've done. It's always about calling for repentance. Right? Saying, here's, here's how you've gone away from what God has created you to do. A prophet is about calling for repentance in our lives. So reminding and repenting for reclaiming. What happens here? He says, I will show you no mercy and you will not be my people. And he reclaims their true name. No, I will have mercy on you and you will be my people. And then he's about resting. The prophet actually is about resting. It's not about turmoil. It's not about being afraid of the future. It's about knowing that somehow God is pursuing and moving and orchestrating life in order to bring us into right relationship with him. And so we can rest in him completely. We see that in Hosea 14. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olives. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Meaning I will be over them, protecting them, caring for them. And they will flourish. We return because we're reminded of who God has made us to be. It causes us to repent and we are reclaimed in who we truly are and then we rest. Listen to what Michael Williams says about prophets. He says, thus Israel's prophets interpret its misbehavior in a way that points backwards and forwards in history. In the periods of the prophets, Israel is ungraciously forsaking the covenant to which their redeeming Lord has graciously bound them. 
the consequence of this will be divine judgment as promised. But Israel's incorrigible rebellion and self-incurring plight underscores its need for something that the prophets can give them, but which Yahweh, the Father, through them promises a further and final coming of God's salvation. The prophets comfort the people with this future hope. And their office of prophet anticipates one who is yet to come, who will not just be a prophet, but who will also be a priest and a king. You see, what God has done in the nation of Israel is He's prepared the way for His Son, Jesus Christ, to come onto the scene to be all of those things. To be the prophet who points us towards repentance and brings us hope. To be the priest who shows us the face of God and brings us into the entrance of Him. And to be the king, the one who rules supremely and guards and protects His people. So you have to come next week to hear the rest of that. But for today, what we know is this. That within a body of Christ, within this place, that God has moved in a way to give us the opportunity to see His pursuit. Each one of us have a love story. That love story is of God pursuing us through all our shame and through all of our fear. And in that pursuit of us, He does not leave us abandoned or by Himself. He brings us together to be the larger story of who He is. And so it should always remind us that there but by the grace of God go I. That while I have maybe abandoned Him, He pursues me. He comes for me, seeking me. That's the reason why I agree with Annie Dillard, who's a writer, who says this about the church. And this should be where we're moving. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us all to the pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out of where we can never return. The story of God's pursuing love for us should undo us. And in doing us, it will bring us back to who we truly are. And in doing that, we become the priest who lifts God's name on high to those around us and draws them in. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. We pray that these words be your words, that if there's anything good from them, that they will take root in our hearts and bring us to you. If they are bad, that they will burn up and go away. Father, you are holy. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.
Amen. Would you please stand as we respond to this word by saying aloud together Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5. Let's say this together. We'll start with I wait patient. I wait patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making me step secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God. You have wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Amen. You may be seated.